this is the first Sunday after Epiphany. So here's the plan. I want to say a little bit about Epiphany, about this Sunday, which is the baptism of Christ, to say some things to you about the centrality of baptism and why the Episcopal Church and other Western churches uh, that have been part of the liturgical renewal over the last 50 years believe now that we need to focus ourselves on baptism, understanding it as the template that we lay over our own understanding of how we act in the world as Christian people. And then to say a word to you about the gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism and how they point to something that you and I um, always think about in some form or another this time of year because it's New Year and we make resolutions or try to about vocation and how we understand vocation because the gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism are about a vocational moment for the Savior and how we see its importance and its plural nature because the, the, the witness of the gospel uh, shows us that uh, the perception of vocation and its meaning both shifts over time and also shifts with the person and who it is that hears about it and how it works in that, in that fashion. The celebration of the Christmas season, the 12 days of Christmas, Christmas tide, however you wish to refer to it, is the celebration of the presence of Christ to the church. It's our basking in the gift of the Savior, the infant Savior. And so the things that we proclaim and the things that we talk about uh, have to do sort of with um, both in personal subjective terms with our own interior um, emotional, mental, and spiritual states. They have to do with how the church understands itself as church. And they have to do in some way with seeing how we reflect back that presence. And Epiphany is the feast that directs this presence now outward and makes it manifest. And so we understand how, we, or at least reflect on, how we're going to put this in our hands. How do I become the transparency and reflection of God's grace and love that I'm called to be? How do I see that uh, the presence of Christ isn't some uh, interior consolation only, for my uh, navel-gazing purposes, but it's a summons by God to um, reflect those values to the world in some way. In Western Christianity, on the Feast of Epiphany, the gospel that we read is the story of the visit uh, to the infant Savior by the three magi. And it is for the purpose of communicating to the world the universal significance of the incarnation, which is the fancy way of saying Jesus' birth has significance for the world. And now we're going to begin to proceed to reflect as we move forward on this. Remember, just to go back for a minute, that uh, the Christian year has two cycles. The first and most ancient cycle is Lent, Easter, Pentecost. And the second one is Advent, Christmas, Epiphany. So we're in the second cycle, but it's about how we understand uh, 
the life of Jesus in those two ways. And then we have about half of the year where after we've heard about the life of Jesus in the Christian year, we reflect on the nature, cost, and the ways and means of Christian discipleship. So that's why we have a liturgical year, why I'm so pleased to be part of a tradition that has a liturgical year. I wouldn't want to have to make this up every week. It would be a trial. I'd have to say, I'd say some people may have more uh, facility for that than than, uh, I would for sure. In any case, the gospel that the Eastern Church reads on Epiphany is the gospel of what we read today, the baptism of Christ. So they begin the manifestation with the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. We prefer to speak about the manifestation and the universal significance, and then the Sunday immediately following, we speak about Jesus's, the inauguration of his public ministry in, in, at baptism, his baptism, and the vocational moment that provides for Jesus. So hold that thought while I mention something else to you, and that is the presence of Christ that we're taking with us now to make manifest has very much to do with the four affirmations I have spoken about during Christmas and do every year. The affirmation of the goodness of our humanity, the affirmation that each one of us can achieve the highest of our human potential, the affirmation that it is possible in a world like this and indeed in every age to be joyful And finally, because of the uh, serenity and um, freedom from uh, anxiety that that can create, we now are enabled to be peacemakers. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. That's your job, you know. Notice that it's in the catechism on page 855. You know, the first aspect of the mission isn't to bank all these souls home to Christ in Jesus, right? It's to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. And so you can and are an instrument of God's restorative healing purposes in the world. And that's what we seek to make manifest as we move now through Epiphany. One of the central features of the liturgical renewal in Western Christianity has been the focus on the importance of baptism. And you know, uh, this is something that we've been working on for the last 50 years, and I don't think we're ever going to get to a full understanding. There was a famous liturgical scholar in the Roman Catholic Church, a Benedictine named Aidan Kavanaugh. He died about three or four years ago. And Aidan Kavanaugh when he was, uh, you know, lobbying for, the litur- for liturgical renewal in parishes and everything, would sometimes shake his head and he said, I guess Mrs. Murphy has always been going to Mass at 8 a.m. You know? <laughs> and what he meant by that was that, you know, a lot of this stuff still remains for many of us external. But the importance of, of baptism is to understand this in a way that is important because a lot of people... The default, after Constantine, you know, the first 300 years of Christian history or so, most people who got baptized were adults. 
And we don't have any idea how widely this was actually practiced. Sometimes you get the impression from some of the academic people that this was the system, which I'm going to describe now, and that is it took you three years to get baptized. You went through the catechumenate, right? And this has been restored in a number of places, where at least there's a period of preparation for adult baptism, and they consider that an important thing. We also had a parallel development during this time, which was that particularly important and great people waited until their deathbed to be baptized so that they had a little sinning room. <laughs> because there was a problem there with the idea that if you committed post-baptismal sin, you were cooked. So Constantine got baptized on his deathbed even though he was he converted to Christianity and not only made Christianity tolerated in the Roman Empire but the only legal religion in the Roman Empire which is our want also isn't it our tendency towards black and white thinking you know you need to have it either no Christianity or only Christianity right we're not going to have anything uh, in between or just sort of a more relaxed view the actual practice, as you know, in life is always a bit more ambiguous than that. But in the historical record, that seems to be what we, what we have seen. So the question is, if the normative age for baptism was adulthood, then it appears after Christianity became the legal religion, everybody needs to get baptized ASAP, right? Or they're going to do that. I mean, Ivan the Great... Ivan the fir or Vladimir the first of Russia converted to Christianity in the, a thousand before the Great Schism, about a thousand A.D. And he literally went through his kingdom and said, "Step into the river." You know, they're all out there. Get into the river. You know, had all the priests baptize his country. Well, once you do that, who are you going to baptize? Children and infants. We have always believed in our tradition that there has always been infant baptism and there's biblical warrant to do it when it says in the New Testament that the apostles came to households and baptized them and one assumes that there were infants and young children in these households. And furthermore, from a pastoral point of view, it seems to be uh, not a good plan to withhold the power of the sacramental life from any Christian person and in a family to have their children baptized and be able to share in the sacramental life is a great and precious gift. So I'm just telling you how we get, got started on this train we've been on for a long time. But here's what happened as you begin to create uh, theologies for practices that evolved in a kind of an ad hoc way. That's often what happens. The theologizing about it is now trying to justify practices of one kind or another. And that's always been a tension in the church's life, for sure. But what happens is that we began to think that what baptism was, since we believed it was central and important and God's welcome to everyone to be part of this great community of faith, that it takes on the aura of a kind of cosmic spot remover. Doesn't it? You baptize somebody and you remove all their sins and you bank them home to God. 
It's been a number of years, but I've been a pre, I have to say my dear friend Ernest Carver, is it today, 45 years? Yesterday. Yesterday, a priest for 45 years. I thought I was making progress. <laughs> 34, but there it is. Um, in any case, uh, you, you believe that this is, I, I, years ago, I would have people call me and say, you know, um, my husband and I are going back to, to Queens uh, for Christmas, and we just had a, a little daughter, and I'm wondering, could you, could you baptize her? I mean, I don't want to get on the plane and fly back there, and if the plane should crash, you know, I don't want her to die and not be baptized, right? Because she'll be in limbo. <laughs> there was a wonderful New Yorker cartoon about 20 years ago of four or five guys sitting on a bench, it looked like in a locker room, and they were wearing night white, like night gowns, and they were sitting on the bench, and one of these guys said, you know, I thought when I died, I'd either go to heaven or hell, but I never dreamed I'd be in limbo. <laughs> you know, somebody who went to a parochial school many years ago said that the sister told him that what happened if infants died and they weren't baptized in limbo, actually limbo was like being in the playground with all your toys, being able to do everything you wanted to do, but you just didn't get to see God. Well, as my teacher, Joseph Ignatius Hunt, said, you can believe that if you want to. <laughs> right? We don't believe in a God who casts little babies into limbo or anywhere else. And so we have worked and labored to get over the idea that um, this is some kind of cosmic spot remover. We haven't said it doesn't forgive and remove sins, but we do uh, avoid a kind of... Um, superstitious understanding of what that might mean, and maybe an overly uh, mechanistic understanding of the power of baptism. Because you know, when we baptize infants who aren't conscious of what takes place, it's our welcome as the community to the family and to everybody to start on this road together. And any of us who have wished to take this seriously and intentionally in our life know that it definitely is a journey, and there are many twists and turns to our spiritual development. So I mention all this and went on and on about it because our understanding of baptism now is the welcome. And it has something to do with the invitation to go on the way. And clearly it makes the greatest and most powerful sense with parents when you baptize infants who intend to be part of the community life so that they're there, you know? <coughs> And if kids, as is their want, get baptized and then go, which happens often, the way we, or we ordered confirmation for many years, it was kind of like graduation from church. <laughs> right? So you do that, and you have at least provided them now with the sacramental substance uh, when they get it, that they need to come back. And I've seen that many times in my ministry uh, and in my life. So baptism is central to our self-understanding. We do, we do it four times a year at St. Luke's. We do it on the baptism of Christ, we do it on uh, Easter, and we do, it, we do it on Pentecost and on All Saints Sunday. 
At one time, there was only one time in the year in the first four centuries of Christianity when you did it, and it was Easter. But as time went on, this, these other times became usually the important default uh, positions. And I must tell you this, it is my proud boast. As a priest, I have crossed my tracks so many times, I hate to admit to you the number. The only thing I've never <coughs> done in all my years of ministry is baptize anybody privately, ever. I have always done it publicly and insisted upon that, which is consistent with the church's <coughs> renewal of the understanding of that sacrament and something that was drilled into me in the halcyon days at Neshota House <laughs> before it went back into the fever swamps of reaction. <laughs> so let's talk about the gospel. Jesus is baptized today by John the Baptist. This is one of the most widely attested things in the New Testament, Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. You know, one of the ways that biblical scholars talk about the authenticity of the biblical witness is a device known as multiple attestation. And so there's multiple attestation for this. And you know, I always think that it tells us something about the veracity of the biblical witness too because it has something to do with the willingness on the part of the biblical authors to speak about things that are uncomfortable for them in their life and in their communities and were controversial. How come these don't agree with one another? How come Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist if we say he's God and he didn't need to do that? And what, why is that? And they face that head on and describe it. Today, in Luke's account, uh, John the Baptist is mentioned at the beginning of the reading today, but then at the baptism, we don't hear anything about John the Baptist being the baptizer. We just hear about Jesus being baptized. But here is the important thing. The three Gospels that we call synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are all similar, have accounts of Jesus' baptism. In Matthew and Luke, the accounts are not exact, but the place, one of the places where they agree is that when Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, the voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, or words to that effect, is heard by everyone. So Jesus hears these words, but so does the crowd or the people around him. And so in a minute when we talk about vocation, these are gospels about the vocation of the whole community of faith in a sense. Mark, the earliest gospel, is baptized and when he comes out of the water, a voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased and it is heard only by the Savior. So what does that mean? It's an interior moment for him. It's some kind of a personal vocational affirmation about what he's going to do. We say that we affirm the humanity of Jesus. And you know what? I think it's hard for a lot of people to do that. In fact, in the early Christian church, there were a lot of what we now, some would call heresies, about what Jesus was really like. And I think there are still people who believe that he was walking six inches off the ground all the time, that if you got too close to him, you could actually push your hand through him, <laughs> right? 
They can't be just like we are, right? But yes, he was. He was a human being. So if you went up to Jesus and you asked him about a space capsule, he would have no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> None. He would not know. Well, some would say, oh, that's not true. He's God. He'd certainly know about a space capsule. Well, you can believe that if you want to. <laughs> the fact of the matter is that Jesus is going through a process of developing in his own mind and heart what his vocation is. What does God want him to do? Because one of the awkward things about this John the Baptist deal is that it appears fairly clear that he was a disciple of John the Baptist. So if he was a disciple of John the Baptist and following him, he must have had some idea that John the Baptist was on the right track about the future age. But we also know from the Gospel witness that he gets baptized and takes a left turn from John the Baptist. And instead of focusing his ministry on repentance and the forgiveness of sins as the centerpiece, he focuses his ministry on the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom and how you and I have a responsibility to advance the values of the kingdom of God so that we labor together to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. And while it is not possible for human beings to bring the kingdom of God here, that's God's business, you and I can reflect that back to the creation that God made and called good, including us, right? So we have some piece, some role to play in this. The Latin word vocare is where we get vocation. And uh, Jesus is thinking now about how his internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states are going to cooperate with uh, God's purposes and how he is going to communicate in some way to others how they might do that as well. And I say to this to you over and over again, uh, certainly the community that wrote John's Gospel and probably the other communities said, you know, in this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. If God were a human being and walking around on the earth, this is who he, what he would be like. But what we've learned like about this is that we're not just watching this six inches off the ground, semi-transparent thing race. He has provided us with tools that we can use. He's giving us a far deeper understanding of the nature of our humanity. And that we have learned as we have lived our lives that we do not have to be effective both in our internal state and also in our relational life by developing and understanding an elaborate religious vocabulary. We do it by becoming the best human beings that we can be and being able to reflect that back to other people to bring some species of reconciliation, wholeness, and healing to the world. And all of the biblical vocabulary in the original languages tells us that salvation is wrapped up with the whole idea of healing, that we understand in some way this business about being the best human being that we can be in some way that remains 
uh, unclear always, but there, and that is that you and I are made in God's image. So when we're made, if we're made in God's image, we live into this in the process. Uh, the tradition, like the Episcopal Church, believes that one of the places we access that is through the sacramental system. Baptism, the Eucharist, and the other uh, encounters with Christ that we call sacraments in the church's life. So Jesus provides now uh, a template in terms of understanding the movability of our vocation, or the, the fungibility in some way, if that's the right word to use in this case that it changes over time, that Jesus himself went through this. You know, they had these big arguments in the first two or three hundred years about who Jesus was and all this stuff, you know, the great ecumenical councils and everything. One of them, for example, was, did Jesus go through a moral development? Okay? I mean, was he born and he knew exactly? You know, or did we have to have get up and brush your teeth? In other words, was he socialized as a child? And the answer came, yep, he was. He's just like us, right? He may have been precocious. <laughs> Sounds like it in the biblical witness in some places. But the fact of the matter is he went through some species of a moral development just like you and I do. And it, that has to be so for the, us to affirm the fullness of his humanity. And therefore, the possibility by extension that we live into that and can do that too. So the feast of the baptism of Christ is about this. It's about living into the fullness of your humanity. It's saying to yourself, there's a way that I could, even if I was baptized as an infant, don't think about my baptism and all this stuff. What I do every Ash Wednesday, this is the truth, between the liturgies, at least somewhere along the way, I go into the church and I sit down in one of those <coughs> acolyte pews and I open the book to the baptismal covenant, either to page 292 or the baptismal liturgy itself, and I read it. And I ask myself the question, how am I doing? You know, Lent's the time when it's, you know, serious, full tilt, boogie, self-examination, no kidding. So you read that and you say, well, is there something I can do there that might be important? We're so fortunate as Episcopalians to have the baptismal covenant. Uh, one of the great issues in the Episcopal Church and the worldwide Anglican communion is that a lot of our brothers and sisters in other provinces don't operate with a baptismal covenant. They operate with a liturgy that doesn't have one. And so their belief is that the whole way we understand baptism is this cosmic spot remover, uh, regenerative sort of thing. And that's just simply not the whole story. Because God wants each one of you to live into the fullness of your humanity. God needs each one of you to bring to the world those special gifts that you have in big and small ways. And God needs you, for some mysterious reason, to bring into the full purposes his plan for the cosmos. So we give thanks to God for that on the baptism of Christ. Amen. <laughs>